Hello, everyone. I'm Dominique. And I'm Christina. And we are the Connected in Glass podcast. Every week, we will feature interviews with glass artists who speak to their creative processes and overcoming challenges. These conversations are real and raw. We hope that by sharing these stories, you're able to find some connection and know that you're not alone. We just wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to our podcast. We're super passionate about this project and work for hours every week to bring you this content. So if you'd like to help support us, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash connected in glass. Also, please consider joining our Facebook group, Connected in Glass Community, where we continue the conversations from these episodes. We'd love to hear from you. This episode of Connected in Glass is sponsored by Diddy Clips. Diddy Clips has changed the way we film our glass blowing videos, and we're proud to be working with them. Today, we're interviewing Trina Urata Weintraub. Trina is a glass artist based in Waltham, Massachusetts, who's been working with glass since 2004. Hello. Hi. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right. So we're so excited to get to know you. First, we want to hear about the parts of your life that don't have to do with glass. So where you live, what you do for fun, and then get us into your story of working with glass. The parts of my life that don't include glass. I don't think there's very many of them. As glass lifers like you guys, I'm sure you feel the same. I'd say I enjoy hanging out with my family and friends. Not as much as I used to since, you know, the past crazy year. Hobby-wise, I enjoy hula hooping. And I recently bought a pair of roller skates. I've only wore them and tried them a couple times. But I'm hoping to, like, add that onto my list of things I like to do. Or hurt myself trying. We'll see. Other than that. I don't really think there's much. I am definitely a serious workaholic. (laughs) I like what I do, so it doesn't really feel like work. All right, so tell us how you started doing this work. Oh, glass. How did I get into glass? Feels like forever ago. I think I was always searching for the creative material I wanted to work with. I remember when I was a teenager, I tried playing an instrument. I think I played bass and wasn't very good at it. I'm not very musical at all. I tried drawing and painting and things like that, but none of them really stuck. And then when I was about, you know, late teens and, of course, smoking pot and everything, I had glass pipes and I would always admire them and love them so much. And my uncle said, like, well, why don't you try and blow glass? And I didn't really think of it as something that was accessible because it feels like this magical, crazy thing that only super talented people can do. And... I found a class at Worcester Center Crafts, and I took that and just became my everyday. I immediately knew the minute I made a little beat, I was like, okay, this is it. I can't do anything else with the rest of my time. (laughs) So that class was on the torch? Yep, it was bead making with, I think, Liliana Glenn. Cool. So then how do you take it from there? Well, I took that class with my sister, which is weird. She hadn't pursued it at all afterwards, but because she saw that I wanted to do it so much. We put our money together and set up a little tiny flame working studio in my father's shed. And we used that together, but mainly it was mine and she was just supporting my my dream. So I just made beads constantly until I was like, okay, I need to like scale this up a little bit. And then I took another class with Sally Prash and that really just like 
made everything go so much faster once I could see that there was other things to do besides tiny little beads and little figurines. And I started blowing and sculpting. Everything just took off from there. And then you went to college for it? Yes. So I kept taking classes and working in my little backyard studio for a few years. And I wanted to learn more. So I took another class and it happened to be with my now husband, Dave Weintraub. And he introduced me to mass art. And the minute I saw hot glass, and you're a hot glass blower, Dom, so you know that one is even more magical in person than flame working. Everything starts from goo, and it just seems so magical and crazy. So the minute I saw him pull cane and roll it up, I was like, okay, sign me up. Where do I go? How do I, how do, I do this? So then I ended up going and getting my degree. Did you fall in love with him right away, or did that take a long time? <laughs> oh, no, I had a crush on him immediately. <laughs> I don't know if it was obvious, but I definitely had a crush on him right away. <laughs> I'm glad it was mutual and it all worked out. It's been 14 years now. Oh, wow. That's cool. A love story of glass and love. Yeah, it's pretty much our whole world. It's all we do and talk about. I don't know if it's healthy, but it works for us. <laughs> okay, so now you have a business together. So can you lead us up to that? So we started Fiamma maybe. I want to say 2009 or 2010. It was before I graduated Mass Art and Dave had already graduated. So we needed a place to work. So we wanted to set up our, a studio space. And we we're like, why not set up some extra stations so we can do rental time and teaching? Because at that time, we both loved to teach as well. So we started off with this tiny little shop in Newton, which is just west of Boston, a little bit further from where we are now. And we had like six small stations, six stations with minor burners. And the it was so tight. I think it was so tiny. Like you could not, you could hardly move around. So the space I have now is much bigger. We have 16 stations. We have a lathe. We have a tiny little cold shop, sandblasting, a lot more stuff now. But it took a while to build up to that one. We had our spot in Newton for, I want to say, five or six years before they decided to raise the rent way too much for that teeny tiny space. So we hunted out another space and we're really lucky to find the spot we're in now. It's much larger, but it's definitely a little weird. It has no windows <laughs> at all. So I call it the dungeon. The floors are, I don't think there's a level spot in any of the floors. So we make it work though. We make it work for sure. Can you talk about what your business model was when you started and then maybe how you progressed and changed to be where it is now? I would say that Dave is the mastermind behind the whole business for sure. He had already run a couple other flame working studios before we met, both production style ones or ones where they were teaching classes and stuff. So he already had like a basis for what he knew would work. So we built, built it from there, knowing that we were going to dabble in a few different things, because as I'm sure you know, it's tricky to make a living in glass. You kind of have to do a bunch of different things to make it work. So we wanted to do all those things within glass. We would teach and do rentals, do commissions, do production, whatever we needed to do, you know, to make ends meet and to work in glass. So we went from there and then whichever one seemed like they were doing well, we would push those harder. I think that we work really well as a team in that sense. In some ways, you know, I would take over a lot of the administrative stuff and Dave would do a lot of the building in the studio, making the vents and the hoods and all that stuff work, building the tables. 
I helped a little bit with that stuff, but he's definitely a lot handier than I am. <laughs> so it's definitely like grown and changed from there. I think the past year and a half with everything that's happened, our business model has changed once again because we had to ease off on the classes, obviously. And it's made me have to make a lot, a lot more stuff to sell directly to people or to shops and stores and galleries and less teaching and working hands-on with people. If you're going to talk about um, the way you separate your time as if it's like a pie, can you talk about the different revenues of income that you have? Like one of them is like teaching a little bit for you still, right? One is your sculpture work, right? Can you talk about more of that? I would say that pie changes every single month (laughs) and maybe every single week. So it's totally different. I would say at the moment, I, I don't know. It's hard to say. Like I said, it changes so, so very much depending like what shows I have coming up. Recently, I've been dabbling of getting back into the functional glass world. So that's been a bigger piece of the pie than it has been in the past 12 years or 10 years or so. But sometimes if there's a show coming up, say Sofa or the gallery show with Habitats having a show coming up then that will be a bigger piece of the pie for that month or two. Or in summer, we're busier for classes if we're running them. And then during the semester, I teach one course at MassArt. So that's a piece of the pie then, but everything changes again, you know, in summer. So it fluctuates and changes a lot. So speaking of your sculpture work, I feel like you're really well known for your mice, especially. Can you talk a little bit about where the inspiration for those pieces of work come from and maybe how you go through and get them into galleries and things like that? Sure. I think that's actually a really good example for that. I originally started making them. I think I was a junior at MassArt at the time. And that's when you really start trying to make sculpture, not just like experiments. You try to make like a body of work. So I came into that semester with the idea of making the mice. And I had this little paper cutout that was the original idea, which was to have a glass balloon with a little dead mouse or sleeping mouse hanging from the ribbon and a bunch of mice underneath it. So that was kind of the original idea. I wasn't sure exactly where the idea came from. I actually had a dream of making a glass hamster and it. I don't really like hamsters. (laughs) Well, okay, I like all animals, but I've been bitten by hamsters a few times and I've had pet mice in the past and they're lovely and have never bit me. (laughs) But I don't hate hamsters just to set the record straight. So I guess having that dream of making the glass hamster made me think about making a little glass mouse. And I have much more of a connection to glass mice or, or to mice, I should say. It was my first pet was that was my own pet besides like family dog or cat was a little white mouse named Jerry. And mice don't live very long. And it was my first experience with death. I had to be maybe eight or nine years old or so. And this is kind of a weird story, but I'll share it anyway. (laughs) So after it died, I took it and I buried it out front, this like really pretty tree we had out front our home. It had like little pink flowers on it. I can totally picture it exactly in my head. And I buried my little Jerry Mouse under that tree. And I just didn't understand death, I guess, or what was happening. So every day I kept going back and like digging him up to see what what was happening. So every day I would go back until one day it wasn't there anymore. 
So when I started sculpting the mice, like that story or that imagery kept coming up in my head over and over again. So I'm not sure that the inspiration started there, but it kind of went there and became a way for me to, I guess, explore my feelings about death and loss, both then and how I feel about it now, as well as maybe recreate that memory and change it. So it's no longer this like weird little eight-year-old digging up her dead mouse, but I recreated the story and now the mouse is, you know, flying away on a balloon. (laughs) I love it. Thanks so much for sharing that. (laughs) All right. So let's say you had a new idea, something that you haven't done in class before. How do you work through that? Do you draw it out? Do you write out the steps or can you visualize it in your head to a point where you just take it right to class? All of those things, except the last thing. I don't think I can ever visualize it and bring it right to glass. Anytime I just have an idea, I'm like, okay, let me step up to my torch or to the bench and try and make it. It never goes well. I end up just wasting time and energy and money and time on the torch and especially time in the hot shop is expensive. So you have to think about, you know, when you're paying for it, it's a lot of money to just mess around. So I will start by drawing. I look at a lot of images. I'll maybe, if it's a certain animal, I might try and buy like the little figurines. Like at the craft store, they'll have like little zoo animals and stuff like that. I have a whole box full of those. I'll also sculpt them out of like oil clay or sculpy clay and bake them. So then I can have the model at my bench when I'm working. And also having the model, like when you're making it, you think about glass because you work with glass. So if I'm adding a little ball of clay, I think, okay, that could be, either a bubble that I blow out or a bit that I add on and thinking about when I'm smearing the clay in, that's where I'm going to aim the torch to melt it that way and melt it in, or if I'm pinching something. So even though I'm working directly with my hands in the clay, I'm thinking about the glass process. And I always tell my students, if you can't make it out of clay, then you can't make it out of glass because glass is so much more difficult to work with and you can't directly touch it with your hands. So you can't sculpt it out of clay. How do you expect yourself to sculpt it a tool away with this mysterious solid slash liquid material with fire? (laughs) And let's say that you're going into the studio and you have a mindset of teaching. What's the difference between a mindset of teaching somebody and the mindset of you going in and doing it on your own? Oh, that's a good question. Hmm. I think I'll compare it to teaching at MassArt because that's like a lengthier class time. At our studio, our classes are generally like two or three or maybe four hours long. And we get students that are like introductory to like kind of advanced beginners. These days, we don't have a lot of really advanced students coming through the studio. But at MassArt, I get art students and I get them for 15 weeks or so. And I get them for five hour block each week so I really get to spend a lot more time with them when I go into that it's not just about teaching them glass but it's about making them feel comfortable and confident and not nervous because glass is a really scary thing to work with I mean stepping up to the furnace or stepping up to the torch can be super intimidating for some students so I think about that a lot when I'm teaching it's definitely a lot more social which I don't think I'm as supernatural with, but I think when you really care about your students and care about the process and what you're teaching, it doesn't matter. All that kind of goes away. So any anxiety or nervousness I would have about, you know, being social or being the loudest person in the room that all 16 set of eyes are staring at, 
that totally makes me nervous, it kind of goes out the window once I know, okay, I'm just telling you and sharing with you this thing that I love. And then I see how nervous they are. And if I can't be nervous, I have to make them comfortable. <laughs> but if I'm going into shop to work on something on my own, I like hype myself up for that. You know, I'll put on some good music. I'll have out all my materials, my clay models, my drawings. I have everything set up. I usually clean my station really nice and get out all the tools that I need just to like prep for the day. And so do you ever feel stuck or you do you always have creative ideas or do you ever feel like you just you don't have any new ideas and how do you deal with that or work through it? I wish I could say I just always had creative ideas. That would be really cool. But no, it doesn't work that way. My husband was just laughing at me the other day and he's like, why do you, why do you, your creative process sometimes looks like you're torturing yourself. You're not even having fun right now. But sometimes you just get into a weird headspace where like nothing is right. Nothing you do is good, but you just work through it. You know, like I'll, sometimes I'll bust out my sketchbooks from when I was 16 years old until the ones I had in college. And I'll flip through those and see if I have any old ideas that will maybe bring up some new ideas or some things that I hadn't made that I want to make now. If I ever feel totally stuck and not at all creative, which sometimes happens, I go into what I call robot mode. There's always something to do with the studio. I can go and I can clean, I can work, I can do prep work, I can do color prep. There's always something to do, whether I'm feeling creative or not. Robot mode. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, it's robot mode. (laughs) I'm like, okay, I'm not feeling super creative today, so robot, robot time. (laughs) It's like going through the motions and like making yourself do at least something. Yes. Can you check some things off that list, you know? and not feel like a total lump. And what would you say is your definition of success? Or do you feel like you've reached that? I would say it's just being happy. I'm, I feel pretty happy these days. <laughs> so I guess I, I guess I am there. I'm doing what I love and I'm surrounded by people that I love. I have all the things that I need. And obviously you're always like dreaming of the next thing and maybe buying a house or getting a bigger studio or being able to buy all that glass color you want, or that extra big torch that you want to get next, or whatever tool it might be. But as long as I can wake up in the morning and do what I love with the person that I love, how can I complain? It's so beautiful. (laughs) Okay, so can you talk about pricing your work? How do you price your stuff, whether it's just your mice that you've been working on for like over a decade, right? Or the sculpture pieces that you spent hours and hours and hours working through, like, how do you come up with a price for those? Oh, man, that's like one of the hardest parts. I do what you just did is I ask everyone I know, (laughs) like their advice. So all of my professors at MassArt, when I was a student, I would ask them about pricing Anytime I go to art shows or galleries, and if it doesn't list the price, I'll ask the prices. So I can be like, okay, well, it's a cast piece. It's about this big. This artist is really well known. And this is the price they're getting. And then you can look at something that's like comparable size and maybe style or process by an artist that's not so well known and kind of check out that price. So when I first started selling my sculpture, I definitely had a hard time with pricing because I still don't think I'm not really well known still, but like how you price it is based not just on the process and size and stuff, but also 
what you can get. And I think I have always and probably still do underprice my work a little bit, mostly because, you know, I want it to sell and I need to pay my bills. I'm learning more so now that sometimes it's okay to price your work what you think it really is worth. But I think what it comes down to, what it all boils down to is what amount of money would I be able to accept and not like keep me up at night to see it go? Like would set amount of money make me be like, oh man, I wish I didn't do that. I feel terrible. Or would I be like, okay, that's cool. I feel happy about that. <laughs> I think that's what it comes down to. And when I, I did production stuff for years and I would say, add up my hours plus the materials, like how much do I want to get paid per hour? What does it cost me to make said object? Am I paying an assistant? And I would add up those numbers that way. But that doesn't really apply to sculpture or artwork because all of that goes completely out the window because you spend way more time on it than you could ever calculate. There was a minute where I think there was a couple of pieces where I was like, okay, I'm going to like a couple of the bunnies I made. I was like, I'm going to keep track of the hours I work on this piece because it's not just like a few days or a week straight. I'll do a few hours here and there and wherever. And I lost track at maybe 28, 30 hours or something. And I just stopped keeping track and then it broke. And then I was like, I felt terrible because I was like, that's so many hours just shattered. So I was like, I can't keep track of hours anymore. <laughs> Sometimes just, it just hurts too much. <laughs> yeah, it's probably better if I did, but I can't. Do you have any experience with imposter syndrome? And if so, how do you get yourself out of it? You know, it's funny. I was like waiting for you guys to ask this one because I know you asked it in the other, <laughs> other podcast I was listening to. And I wasn't sure exactly what it was other than from your guys' podcast. And I was like, obviously checking it out on Google and reading a little bit about it. And I think what's most interesting about it is having a word or having a phrase or a label to put on a feeling or an emotion like that. So I remember growing up, I don't even think I knew the word anxiety. And then when I got a little bit older, I was like, oh my God, that's, that's what I have. <laughs> I have anxiety right now. I didn't even know what that was. So to my understanding, imposter syndrome is like not feeling like you're worthy of what you get, right? Yeah, I think I definitely feel that sometimes, especially if I've made like, like gotten some awards when I was a student, I would always be like, why me? Why am I getting two awards this semester? What about this other student that did something really good? Instead of being like, yeah, I got an award. <laughs> like my, my husband or boyfriend at the time would just be like, you got an award, baby. Good job. Like, feel good about that and I'm like I don't know though do I deserve yeah I think definitely it's just something you just work through but I think it's it's also a little bit about being humble I don't know if it's healthy I don't know (laughs) thanks for sharing that that's a a really good way to put it it's just not like knowing what it is and knowing the feeling but not having a word for it so and I just think it helps us all if we can talk about it a little bit Yeah, that's what I've been finding, too, is just being able to talk about it, being able to talk about anxiety and your feelings and stuff like that. It's not something that I've always done. I'm definitely doing it a lot more recently. It helps a lot. And how do you not let other people's judgments affect your work? Like, how do you make all these beautiful sculptures and they all have personal meetings and they take so long to do and how do you not let other people's judgments impact like continuing to pursue that stuff I'm not sure that they don't (laughs) I think they do 
I think that I maybe just have, oh, I'm very stubborn. I think I can just force my way through it. If I ever start to feel that, I'll just keep working. I think if anything tries to stop me, I can just force my way through it and just be like, well, just keep working. Just get up in the morning, go to work, get the job done. Having a deadline helps a lot. So if I have a deadline, I know I need to get something done and I can do the job. I think of like art is definitely like a really personal, creative thing. You definitely pour your heart and soul into it. But when it all boils down to it, it is also your job. So you got to get the job done and you can't let all the things people say or the things you think they say, because they're probably not even saying or thinking any of the things you think they are. You just keep going. Just get up in the morning, go to work, get the job done. What you mean all those anxious thoughts we have about other people's thoughts about us aren't real? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Let's say they're not. That might help. (laughs) They're not. We just spiral. (laughs) Do you have your wise words of wisdom or ending notes for people listening? Like for young glass blowers kind of thing? Or anyone? Or for me and Christina. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know if I gave any good advice already. I feel like, you know, we're all just working it out. You have to find what works for you. And I don't know, really, it's just, just do it. Be a robot for a while. (laughs) I wish I had had some sort of like poetic thing to leave on, like this beautiful words of wisdom. I wish I was more crunchy, that I had some sort of spiritual, beautiful thing to say. But for me, it's really just get to work, like go fire up your torch or turn on that glory and get working, make some stuff. And if you're not feeling creative, like get creative. What's going to what's going to inspire you if you don't have like a beautiful moment of the light shining through the window? And now you have this amazing idea of the thing to make. You have to seek it out. Maybe you like birds. Go get a book about birds. Maybe you like something else. I don't know. You had to find it to look for it. You can't wait for it to just hit you on the head. You have to go hunting. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, this is good. Thank you guys. You guys are amazing. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Connected in Glass. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram for more information on the artists we interview and for updates on the podcast.